0: Chapter 7 The tide was out, the beach was deserted. Lazily flopped the warm sea. The sun beat down, beat down hot and fiery on the fine sand, baking the grey and blue and black and white vein pebbles. It sucked up the little drop of water that lay in the hollow of the curved shells. It bleached the pink convolvulus that threaded through and through the sandhills. Nothing seemed to move but the small sandhoppers, pit, pit, pit. They were never still. Over there on the weed-hung rocks that looked at low tide, like shaggy beasts coming down to the water to drink, the sunlight seemed to spin like a silver coin dropped into each of the small rock pools. They danced, they quivered, and minute ripples laved the poorer shores. Looking down, bending over, each pool was like a lake with pink and blue houses clustered on the shores and oh the vast mountainous country behind those houses the ravines the passes the dangerous creeks and fearful tracks that led to the water's edge underneath weighed the sea forests pink thread like trees velvet animos and orange berry spotted weeds now a stone on the bottom moved rocked and there was a glimpse of a black feeler Now a thread-like creature wavered by and was lost. Something was happening to the pink, waving trees. They were changing to a cold moonlight blue. And now there sounded the faintest plop. Who made that sound? What was going on down there? And how strong, how damp the seaweed smelt in the hot sun. The green blinds were drawn in the bungalows of the summer colony, over the verandas, prone on the paddock, flung over the fences, There were exhausted looking bathing dresses and rough striped towels. Each back window seemed to have a pair of sand shoes on the sill and some lumps of rock or a bucket or a collection of power shells. The bush quivered in a haze of heat. The sandy road was empty except for the trout's dog, Snooker, who lay stretched in the very middle of it. His blue eye was turned up, his legs stuck out stiffly and he gave an occasional desperate-sounding puff, as much as to say he had decided to make an end of it and was only waiting for some kind cart to come along. "'What are you looking at, my grandma? "'Why do you keep stopping and sort of staring at the wall?' Keziah and her grandmother were taking their siesta together, the little girl wearing only her short drawers and her underbonnets, her arms and legs bare, lay on one of the puffed-up pillows of her grandma's bed, and the old woman, in a white ruffled dressing-gown, sat in a rocker at the window, with a long piece of pink knitting in her lap. This room that they shared, like the other rooms of the bungalow, was of light-varnished wood, and the floor was bare. The furniture was of the shabbiest, the simplest. The dressing-table, for instance, was a packing-case in a sprig muslin petticoat, and the mirror above was very strange. It was as though a little piece of forked lightning was imprisoned in it. On the table there stood a jar of sea-pinks, pressed so tightly together they looked more like a velvet pincushion, and a special shell which Keziah had given her grandma for a pin-tray, and another, even more special, which she had thought would make a very nice place for a watch to curl up in. "'Tell me, Grandma,' said Keziah. The old woman sighed, whipped the wool twice round her finger, and drew the bone needle through. She was casting on. "'I was thinking of your Uncle William, darling,' she said quietly. "'My Australian Uncle William,' said Keziah. She had another. "'Yes, of course. The one I never saw. That was the one.' "'Well, what happened to him?' Keziah knew perfectly well, but she wanted to be told again. "'He went to the mines, and he got a sunstroke there and died,' said old Mrs. Fairfield. Keziah blinked and considered the picture again, a little man fallen over like a tin soldier by the side of a big black hole. "'Does it make you sad to think about him, Grandma?' She hated her Grandma to be sad. It was the old woman's turn to consider. Did it make her sad to look back, back, to stare down the years as Keziah had seen her doing, to look after them as a woman does, long after they were out of sight? Did it make her sad? No, life was like that. No, Keziah. But why? asked Keziah. She lifted one bare arm and began to draw things in the air. "'Why did Uncle William have to die? "'He wasn't old.' "'Mrs. Fairfield began counting the stitches in threes. "'It just happened,' she said in an absorbed voice. "'Does everybody have to die?' asked Keziah. "'Everybody.' "'Me?' Keziah sounded fearfully incredulous. Some day, my darling.' "'But Grandma,' Keziah waved her leg and waggled the toes. "'They felt sandy.' What if I just won't? The old woman sighed again and drew a long thread from the ball. We're not asked, Keziah, she said sadly. It happens to all of us sooner or later. Keziah lay still, thinking this over. She didn't want to die. It meant she would have to leave here. Leave everywhere. Forever. Leave. Leave. Her grandma. She rolled over quickly. Grandma. "'she said in a startled voice. "'What, my pet? "'You're not to die. Keziah was very decided. "'Ah, Keziah, "'Her grandma looked up and smiled "'and shook her head. "'Don't let's talk about it. "'But you're not to. "'You couldn't leave me. "'You couldn't not be there. "'This was awful. "'Promise me you won't ever do it, Grandma,' "'pleaded Keziah, "'The old woman went on knitting. "'Promise me. "'Say never.' But still, her grandma was silent. Keziah rolled off her bed. She couldn't bear it any longer. And lightly, she leapt onto her grandma's knees, clasped her hands round the old woman's throat and began kissing her. Under the chin, behind the ear and blowing down her neck. Say never, say never, say never, she gasped between the kisses. And then she began, very softly and lightly, to tickle her grandma. Keziah, the old woman dropped her knitting. She swung back in the rocker. She began to tickle Keziah. So never, so never, so never, gurgled Keziah, while they lay there laughing in each other's arms. Come, that's enough, my squirrel. That's enough, my wild pony, said old Mrs. Fairfield, setting her cap straight. Pick up my knitting. Both of them had forgotten what the nether was about. End of chapter seven. Chapter eight. The sun was still full on the garden when the back door of the Burnell shut with a bang, and a very gay figure walked down the path to the gate. It was Alice, the servant girl, dressed for her afternoon out. She wore a white cotton dress with such large red spots on it, and so many that they made you shudder. White shoes and a leghorn turned up under the brim with poppies. Of course she wore gloves, white ones, stained at the fastenings with iron mould, and in one hand she carried a very dashed-looking sunshade, which she referred to as her parasol. Beryl, sitting in the window, fanning her freshly washed hair, thought she had never seen such a guy. If Alice had only blackened her face with a piece of cork before she started out, the picture would have been complete. And where did a girl like that go to in a place like this? The heart-shaped Fijian fan beat scornfully at that lovely bright mane. She supposed Alice had picked up some horrible common larrikin, and they'd go off into the bush together. Pity to have made herself so conspicuous. They'd have hard work to hide with Alice in that rigout. But no, Beryl was unfair, Alice was going to tea with Mrs. Stubbs, who'd sent her an invite by the little boy who called for orders. She had taken ever such a liking to Mrs. Stubbs, ever since the first time she went to the shop to get something for her mosquitoes. Dear heart, Mrs. Stubbs had clapped her hands to her side. i never seen anyone so eaten. You might have been attacked by cannonballs. Alice did wish there'd been a bit of life on the road, though, "'Made her feel so queer, having nobody behind her. "'Made her feel all weak in the spine. "'She couldn't believe that someone wasn't watching her. "'And yet it was silly to turn round. "'It gave you away. "'She pulled up her gloves, hummed to herself, "'and said to the distant gum tree, "'Shan't be long now.' "'But that was hardly company. "'Mrs. Stubbs's shop was perched on a little hillock just off the road, It had two big windows for eyes, a broad veranda for a hat, and the sign on the roof scrawled Mrs. Stubbs's was like a little card stuck rakishly in the hat crowd. On the veranda there hung a long string of bathing dresses, clinging together as though they'd just been rescued from the sea rather than waiting to go in, and beside them there hung a cluster of sand shoes so extraordinarily mixed that to get at one pair you had to tear apart and forcibly separate at loose fifty even then it was the rarest thing to find the left that belonged to the right so many people had lost patience and gone off with one shoe that fitted and one that was a little too big mrs stubbs prided herself on keeping something of everything the two windows arranged in the form of a precarious pyramids were crammed so tight Piled so high that it seemed only a conjurer could prevent them from toppling over in the left hand corner of one window, glued to the pane by four gelatine lozenges, there was, and there had been from time immemorial a notice. Lost handsome gold brooch solid gold on or near beach reward offered. Alice pressed open the door. The bell jangled. The red serge curtains parted and Mrs. Stubbs appeared. With her broad smile and the long bacon knife in her hand, she looked like a friendly brigand. Alice was welcomed so warmly that she found it quite difficult to keep up her manners. They consisted of persistent little coughs and hems, pulls at her gloves, tweaks at her skirt, and a curious difficulty in seeing what was set before her, or understanding what was said. Tea was laid on the parlour table, ham sardines, a whole pound of butter, and such a large johnny cake that it looked like an advertisement for somebody's baking powder. But the primer stove roared so loudly that it was useless to try to talk above it. Alice sat down on the edge of a basket chair while Mrs. Stubbs pumped the stove still higher. Suddenly Mrs. Stubbs whipped the cushion off a chair and disclosed a large brown paper parcel. "'I've just had some new photos taken, my dear,' she shouted cheerfully to Alice. "'Tell me what you think of them.' In a very dainty, refined way, Alice wet her finger and put the tissue back from the first one. Life! How many there were! There were three dozen at least, and she held it up to the light. Mrs. Stubbs sat in an armchair, leaning very much to one side. There was a look of mild astonishment on her large face and well there might be, for though the armchair stood on a carpet to the left of it, miraculously skirting the carpet border, there was a dashing waterfall. On her right stood a Grecian pillar with a giant fern-tree on either side of it, and in the background towered a gaunt mountain, pale with snow. "'It is a nice style, isn't it?' shouted Mrs. Stubbs, and Alice had just screamed sweetly, when the roaring of the primer stove died down, fizzled out, ceased, and she said pretty in a silence that was frightening. Draw up your chair, my dear, said Mrs. Stubbs, beginning to pour out. Yes, she said thoughtfully, as she handed the tea, but I don't care about the size. I'm having an enlargement. All very well for Christmas cards, but I never was the one for small photos myself. You get no comfort out of them to say the truth, I find them disheartening. Alice quite saw what she meant. "'Sighs,' said Mrs. Stubbs. "'Give me sighs.' That was what my poor dear husband was always saying. He couldn't stand anything small. Gave him the creeps. And strange, as it may seem, my dear, here—Mrs. Stubbs creaked and seemed to expand herself at the memory. It was Dropsy that carried him off at the last— Many's the time they'd drawn one and a half pints from him at the hospital, it seemed like a judgment. Alice burned to know exactly what it was that was drawn from him. She ventured. I suppose it was water. But Mrs. Stubbs fixed Alice with her eyes and replied meaningly, It was liquid, my dear. Liquid? Alice jumped away from the word like a cat and came back to it, nosing and wary. "'That's him,' said Mrs. Stubbs, and she pointed dramatically to the life size head and shoulders of a burly man with a dead white rose in the buttonhole of his coat that made you think of a curl of cold mutton fat. Just below, in silver letters on a red cardboard ground, were the words, "'Be not afraid. It is I.' "'It's ever such a fine face,' said Alice faintly. The pale blue bow on the top of Mrs. Stubbs's fair frizzy hair quivered. She arched her plump neck. What a neck she had. It was bright pink where it began, and then it changed to warm apricot, and that faded to the colour of a brown egg, and then to deep creamy. All the same, my dear, she said surprisingly. Freedom's best. Her soft, fat chuckle sounded like a purr. Freedom's best, said Mrs. Stubbs again. Freedom! Alice gave a loud, silly little titter. She felt awkward. Her mind flew back to her own kitchen. Ever so queer, she wanted to be back in it again. End of chapter eight. Chapter nine. A strange company assembled in the Burnell's wash house after tea. Round the table there sat, a bull a rooster, a donkey that kept forgetting it was a donkey, a sheep, and a bee. The wash house was the perfect place for such a meeting because they could make as much noise as they liked, and nobody ever interrupted. It was a small tin shed standing apart from the bungalow. Against the wall there was a deep trough, and in the corner a copper with a basket of clothes pegs on top of it. The little window, spun over with cobwebs, had a piece of a candle and a mousetrap on the dusty sill. There were clotheslines criss-crossed overhead and, hanging from a peg on the wall, a very big, a huge, rusty horseshoe. The table was in the middle, with a form at either side. "'You can't be a bee, Keziah. A bee's not an animal. It's an insect.' "'Oh, but I do want to be a bee, frightfully,' wailed well, Keziah. "'A tiny bee.' All yellow, furry, with striped legs. She drew her legs up under her and leaned over the table. She felt she was a bee. "'An insect must be an animal,' she said stoutly. "'It makes a noise. It's not like a fish.' "'I'm a bull. I'm a bull,' cried Pip, and he gave such a tremendous bellow. How did he make that noise? That Lottie looked quite alarmed. "'I'll be a sheep,' said Rags. A whole lot of sheep went past this morning. "'How do you know?' "'Dad heard them. "'Bah!' "'He sounded like the little lamb that trots behind "'and seems to wait to be carried. doodle doo shrilled Isabel. "'With her red cheeks and bright eyes, "'she looked like a rooster. "'What'll I be?' Lottie asked everybody, "'and she sat there smiling, "'waiting for them to decide for her. "'It had to be an easy one. "'Be a donkey, Lottie. "'It was Casaya's suggestion. "'He or... "'You can't forget that.' "'Hee-haw!' said Lottie solemnly. "'When do I have to say it?' "'I'll explain, I'll explain,' said the bull. "'It was he who had the cards. "'He waved them round his head. "'All be quiet, all listen,' and he waited for them. "'Look here, Lottie. "'He turned up a card. "'It's got two spots on it, see? "'Now, if you put that card in the middle "'and somebody else has one with two spots as well, "'you say, "'Hee-haw,' and the card's yours.' "'Mine?' Lottie was round-eyed. "'To keep?' "'No, silly. Just for the game, see? Just while we're playing.' The bull was very cross with her. "'Oh, Lottie, you are a little silly,' said the proud rooster. Lottie looked at both of them. Then she hung her head, her lip quivered. "'I don't want to play,' she whispered. The others glanced at one another like conspirators. All of them knew what that meant. She would go away and be discovered somewhere standing.' with her penny thrown over her head, in a corner, or against a wall, or even behind a chair. Yes, you do, Lottie. It's quite easy, said Keziah. And Isabel, repentant, said exactly like a grown-up, Watch me, Lottie, and you'll soon learn. Cheer up, Lot," said Pip. There, I know what I'll do. I'll give you the first one. It's mine, really, but I'll give it to you. Here you are, and he slammed the card down in front of Lottie. "'Lottie revived at that, but now she was in another difficulty. "'I haven't got a hanky,' she said. "'I want one badly, too. "'Here, Lottie, you can use mine.' "'Rags dipped into his sailor blouse "'and brought up a very wet-looking one, knotted together. "'Be very careful,' he warned her. "'Only use the corner. Don't undo it. "'I've got a little starfish inside I'm going to try and tame. "'Oh, come on, you girls.' said the bull and mind you're not to look at your cards you've got to keep your hands under the table till i say go smack went the cards round the table they tried with all their might to see but pip was too quick for them it was very exciting sitting there in the wash-house it was all they could do not to burst into a little chorus of animals before pip had finished dealing now Lotty, you begin timidly lottie stretched out a hand "'took the top card off her pack "'and had a good look at it. "'It was plain she was counting the spots "'and put it down. "'No, Lottie, you can't do that. "'You mustn't look first. "'You must turn it the other way over. "'But then everybody will see it "'at the same time as me,' said Lottie. "'The game proceeded. "'Moo! The bull was terrible. "'He charged over the table "'and seemed to eat the cards up. "'Bizz!' said the bee. doo. Isabel stood up in excitement and moved her elbows like wings. Bah! Little Rags put down the King of Diamonds, and Lottie put down the one they called the King of Spain. She had hardly any cards left. Why don't you call out Lottie? I've forgotten what I am, said the donkey woefully. Well, change. Be a dog instead. Bow-wow. Oh, yes, that's much easier, Lottie smiled again. But when she and Keziah both had... A one, Keziah, waited on purpose. The others made signs to Lottie and pointed. Lottie turned very red. She looked bewildered. And at last she said, cause Keziah! sss. Wait a minute. They were in the very thick of it when the bull stopped them. Holding up his hand, What's that? What's that noise? What noise? What do you mean? Asked the rooster. S Shut up! Listen! They were mouth still. I thought I heard a... A sort of knocking, said the bull. What was it like? asked the sheep faintly. No answer. The bee gave a shudder. Whatever did we shut the door for? She said softly. Oh, why? Why had they shut the door? While they were playing, the day had faded. The gorgeous sunset had blazed and died, and now the quick dark came racing over the sea, over the sand hills, up the paddock. You were frightened to look in the corners of the wash-house, and yet— You had to look with all your might. And somewhere, far away, Grandma was lighting a lamp. The blinds were being pulled down. The kitchen fire leapt in the tins on the mantelpiece. It would be awful now, said the bull, if a spider was to fall from the ceiling onto the table, wouldn't it? Spiders don't fall from ceilings. Yes, they do. Our Min told us she'd seen a spider as big as a saucer, with long hairs on it like a gooseberry. Quickly, all the little heads were jerked up. All the little bodies drew together, pressed together. "'Why doesn't somebody come and call us?' cried the rooster. "'Oh, those grown-ups, laughing and snug, sitting in the lamplight, drinking out of cups, they'd forgotten about them. No, not really forgotten. That was what their smile meant. They had decided to leave them there all by themselves.' Suddenly Lottie gave such a piercing scream that all of them jumped off the forms. All of them screamed too. A face! A face looking! shrieked Lottie. It was true, it was real. Pressed against the window was a pale face, black eyes, and a black beard. Grandma! Mother! Somebody! But they had not got to the door, tumbling over one another, before it opened for Uncle Jonathan. He had come to take the little boys home. End of Chapter 9 CHAPTER Ten, He had meant to be there before, but in the front garden he had come upon Linda, walking up and down the grass, stopping to pick off a dead pink or give a top-heavy carnation something to lean against, or to take a deep breath of something, and then walking on again with a little air of remoteness. Over her white frock she wore a yellow, pink-fringed shawl from the Chinaman's shop. "'Hello, Jonathan,' called Linda.' and Jonathan whipped off his shabby Panama, pressed it against his breast, dropped on one knee, and kissed Linda's hand. "'Greeting, my fair one. "'Greeting, my celestial peach blossom,' boomed the bass voice gently. "'Where are the other noble dames?' "'Beryl's out playing bridge, and Mother's giving the boy his bath. "'Have you come to borrow something?' The Trouts were forever running out of things and sending across to the Burnells at the last moment. But Jonathan only answered, A little love, a little kindness, and he walked by his sister-in-law's side. Linda dropped into Beryl's hammock under the manuka tree, and Jonathan stretched himself on the grass beside her, pulled a long stalk, and began chewing it. They knew each other well. The voices of children cried from the other gardens. A fisherman's light cart shook along the sandy road, and from far away they heard a dog barking. "'It was muffled, as though the dog had its head in a sack. "'If you listen, you could just hear the soft swish of the sea "'at full tide sweeping the pebbles. "'The sun was sinking. "'And so you go back to the office on Monday, do you, Jonathan?' asked Linda. "'On Monday, the cage door opens and clangs to upon the victim "'for another eleven months and a week,' answered Jonathan. "'Linda swung a little. "'It must be awful,' she said slowly.' Would you have me laugh, my fair sister? Would you have me weep? Linda was so accustomed to Jonathan's way of talking that she paid no attention to it. I suppose, she said vaguely, one gets used to it, one gets used to anything. Does one. Mm. That mm was so deep it seemed to boom from underneath the ground. I wonder how it's done, brooded Jonathan. I've never managed it. Looking at him, As he lay there, Linda thought again how attractive he was. It was strange to think that he was only an ordinary clerk. That Stanley earned twice as much money as he. What was the matter with Jonathan? He had no ambition. She supposed that was it. And yet one felt he was gifted. Exceptional. He was passionately fond of music. Every spare penny he had went on books. He was always full of new ideas, schemes, plans— but nothing came of it all. The new fire blazed in Jonathan. You almost heard it roaring softly as he explained, described and dilated on the new thing. But a moment later it had fallen in and there was nothing but ashes, and Jonathan went about with a look like hunger in his black eyes. At these times he exaggerated his absurd manner of speaking, and he sung. In church he was the leader of the choir, with such a fearful, dramatic intensity that the meanest hymn put on an unholy splendour. It seems to me, just as imbecile, just as infernal, to have to go to the office on Monday, said Jonathan, as it always has done and always will do, to spend all the best years of one's life sitting on a stool from nine to five, scratching in somebody's ledger. It's a queer use to make of one's one and only life, isn't it? or do I fondly dream? He rolled over on the grass and looked up at Linda. Tell me, what is the difference between my life and that of an ordinary prisoner? The only difference I can see is that I put myself in jail and nobody's ever going to let me out. That's more intolerable situation than the other, for if I'd been pushed in against my will, kicking, even once the door was locked, Or, at any rate, in five years or so, I might have accepted the fact and began to take an interest in the flight of flies or counting the water's steps along the passage with particular attention to variations of tread and so on. But, as it is, I'm like an insect that's flown into a room of its own accord. I dash against the walls, dash against the windows, flop against the ceiling, do everything on God's earth in fact, except fly out again. And all the while I'm thinking, like that moth, or that butterfly, or whatever it is, the shortness of life, the shortness of life. I've only one night or one day, and there's this vast, dangerous garden waiting out there, undiscovered, unexplored. But if you feel like that, why begun? Linda quickly. Ah, cried Jonathan. And that ah, was somehow almost exultant. "'There you have me. Why? Why, indeed? There's the maddening, mysterious question. Why don't I fly out again? There's the window, or the door, or whatever it was I came in by. It's not hopelessly shut, is it? Why don't I find it and be off? Answer me that, little sister.' But he gave her no time to answer." I'm exactly like that insect again. For some reason, Jonathan paused between the words. It's not allowed. It's forbidden. It's against the insect lord to stop banging and flopping and crawling up the pane, even for an instant. Why don't I leave the office? Why don't I seriously consider this moment? For instance, what it is that prevents me leaving? It's not as though I'm tremendously tired. I've two boys to provide for but after all, they're boys. I could cut off to sea, or get a job up country. Or suddenly he smiled at Linda and said in a changed voice, as if he were confiding a secret. Weak, weak, no stamina, no anchor, no guiding principle, let us call it. But then the dark, velvety voice rolled out. Would you hear the story? How it unfolds itself? And they were silent. The sun had set in the western sky. There were great masses of crushed-up rose-coloured clouds. Broad beams of light shone through the clouds and beyond them as if they would cover the whole sky. Overhead the blue faded. It turned to pale gold, and the bush outlined against it gleamed dark and brilliant like metal. Sometimes when those beams of light show in the sky, they are very awful. They remind you, that up there sits Jehovah, the jealous God, the Almighty, whose eye is upon you, ever watchful, never weary. You remember that at his coming the whole earth will shake into one ruined graveyard. The cold, bright angels will drive you this way and that, and there will be no time to explain what could be explained so simply." But tonight it seemed to Linda there was something infinitely joyful and loving in those silver beams, and now no sound came from the sea. It breathed softly, as if it would draw that tender, joyful beauty into its own bosom. It's all wrong. It's all wrong, came the shadowy voice of Jonathan. It's not the scene. It's not the setting for three stools, three desks, three ink pots, and a wire blind. Linda knew that he would never change, but she said, Is it too late, even now? I'm old, I'm old, intoned Jonathan. He bent towards her. He passed his hand over his head. Look, his black hair was speckled all over with silver, like the breast plumage of a black fowl. Linda was surprised. She had no idea that he was grey. And yet, as he stood up beside her and sighed and stretched, she saw him for the first time, not resolute, not gallant, not careless, but touched already with age. He looked very tall on the darkening grass, and the thought crossed her mind. He is like a weed. Jonathan stooped again and kissed her fingers. Heaven reward thy sweet patience, lady mine, he murmured. I must go seek those heirs to my fame and fortune. He was gone. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 Light shone in the windows of the bungalow. Two square patches of gold fell upon the pinks and the peaked marigolds. Florrie the cat came out onto the veranda and sat on the top step, her white paws close together, her tail curled round. She looked content as though she had been waiting for this moment all day. Thank goodness it's getting late, said Florrie. Thank goodness. The long day is over. Her green-gauge eyes opened. Presently there sounded the rumble of the coach, the cracker Callie's whip. It came near enough for one to hear the voices of the men from town talking loudly together. It stopped at the Burnells' gate. Stanley was halfway up the path before he saw Linda. Is that you, darling? Yes, Stanley. He leapt across the flower bed and seized her in his arms. She was enfolded in that familiar, eager, strong embrace. "'Forgive me, darling. Forgive me,' stammered Stanley, and he put his hand under her chin and lifted her face to him. "'Forgive you?' smiled Linda. "'But whatever for?' "'Good God! You can't have forgotten,' cried Stanley Burnell. "'I've thought of nothing else all day. I've had the hell of a day. I made up my mind to dash out and telegraph, and then I thought the wire mightn't reach you before I did. I've been in tortures, Linda.' "'But, Stanley,' said Linda, "'what must I forgive you for?' "'Linda!' Stanley was very hurt. "'Didn't you realise? "'You must have realised. "'I went away without saying good-bye to you this morning. "'I can't imagine how I can have done such a thing. "'My confounded temper, of course. "'But, well,' and he sighed and took her in his arms again, "'I've suffered for it enough today.' "'What's that you've got in your hand?' asked Linda. "'New gloves. Let me see.' Oh, just a cheap pair of wash-leather ones, said Stanley humbly. I noticed Belle was wearing some in the coach this morning, so as I was passing the shop I dashed in and got myself a pair. What are you smiling at? You don't think it was wrong of me, do you? On the contrary, darling, said Linda. I think it was most sensible. She pulled one of the large, pale gloves on her fingers and looked at her hand, turning it this way and that, She was still smiling. Stanley wanted to say, I was thinking of you the whole time I bought them. It was true, but for some reason he couldn't say it. Let's go in, said he. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Why does one feel so different at night? Why is it so exciting to be awake when everybody else is asleep? Late it is, very late, and yet every moment you feel more and more wakeful, as though you were slowly, almost with every breath, waking up into a new, wonderful, far more thrilling and exciting world than the daylight one. And what is this queer sensation, that you're a conspirator, lightly stealthily you move about your room, you take something off the dressing-table and put it down again without a sound and everything even the bedpost, knows you responds shares your secret you're not very fond of your room by day you never think about it you're in and out the doors opens and slams the cupboard creak you sit down on the side of your bed change your shoes and dash out again a dive down to the glass two pins in your hair powder your nose and off again but now it's suddenly dear to you "'It's a darling little funny room. "'It's yours. "'Oh, what a joy it is to own things. "'Mine my own. "'My very own forever. "'Yes, their lips met. "'No, of course. "'That had nothing to do with it. "'That was all nonsense and rubbish. "'But, in spite of herself, "'Beryl saw so plainly two people "'standing in the middle of her room. "'Her arms were round his neck. "'He held her. "'And now he whispered, "'My beauty, my little beauty.' She jumped off her bed, ran over to the window, and kneeled on the window seat, with her elbows on the sill. But the beautiful night, the garden, every bush, every leaf, even the white palings, even the stars, were conspirators too. So bright was the moon that the flowers were bright as by day. The shadow of the nasturtiums, exquisite lily-like leaves, and wide-open flowers lay across the silvery veranda. The Manuka tree, bent by the southerly winds, was like a bird on one leg stretching out a wing. But when Beryl looked at the bush, it seemed to her the bush was sad. We are dumb trees, reaching up in the night, imploring we know not what, said the sorrowful bush. It is true when you are by yourself and you think about life. It is always sad. All that excitement and so on has a way of suddenly leaving you, and it's as though in the silence, somebody called your name, and you heard your name for the first time. Beryl. Yes, I'm here. I'm Beryl. Who wants me? Beryl. Let me come. It is lonely living by oneself. Of course, there are relations, friends, heaps of them, but that's not what she means. She wants one who will find the Beryl, they none of them know. Who will expect her? to be that Beryl always. She wants the lover. Take me away from all these other people, my love. Let us go far away. Let us live our life, all new, all ours, from the very beginning. Let us make our fire. Let us sit down to eat together. Let us have long talks at night. And the thought was almost, save me, my love, save me. Oh, go on, don't be a prude, my dear. You enjoy yourself while you're young. That's my advice." And a high rush of silly laughter joined mrs Harry Kemba's loud, indifferent neigh. You see, it's so frightfully difficult when you've nobody. You're so at the mercy of things. You can't just be rude. And you've always this horror of seeming inexperienced and stuffy like the other ninnies at the bay. And-and it's fascinating to know you've power over people. Yes, that is fascinating. Oh, why? Oh, why doesn't he come soon? If I go on living here, thought Beryl, anything may happen to me. But how do you know he is coming at all? Mocked a small voice within her. But Beryl dismissed it. She couldn't be left. Other people, perhaps. But not she. It wasn't possible to think that Beryl Fairfield never married. That lovely, fascinating girl. Do you remember Beryl Fairfield? remember her, as if I could forget her. It was one summer at the bay that I saw her. She was standing on the beach in a blue, no pink, muslin frock, holding on a big cream, no black, straw hat, but it's years ago now. She's as lovely as ever, more so, if anything. Beryl's smile bit her lip and gazed over the garden. As she gazed, she saw somebody, a man, leave the road, step along the paddock beside their palings, as if he was coming straight towards her. Her heart beat. Who was it? Who could it be? It couldn't be a burglar, certainly not a burglar, for he was smoking, and he strolled lightly. Beryl's heart leapt. It seemed to turn right over, and then to stop. She recognised him. Good evening, Miss Beryl, said the voice softly. Good evening. Won't you come for a little walk? It drawled. Come for a walk at that time of the night? I couldn't. Everybody's in bed. Everybody's asleep. Oh, said the voice lightly, and a whiff of sweet smoke reached her. What does everybody matter? Do come. It's such a fine night. There's not a soul about. Beryl shook her head, but already something stirred in her. Something reared its head. The voice said, frightened, it mocked. Poor little girl. Not in the least, she said. As she spoke, that weak thing within her seemed to uncoil, to grow suddenly tremendously strong. She longed to go, and just as if this was quite understood by the other, the voice said, gently and softly, but finally, "'Come along!' Beryl stepped over her low window, crossed the veranda, ran down the grass to the gate. He was there before her. "'That's right,' breathed the voice, and it teased.' You're not frightened, are you? You're not frightened. She was. Now she was here, she was terrified, and it seemed to her everything was different. The moonlight stared and glittered. The shadows were like bars of iron. Her hand was taken. Not in the least, she said lightly. Why should I be? Her hand was pulled gently, tugged. She held back. No, I'm not coming any farther, said Beryl. Oh, rot, Harry Kemper didn't believe her. "'Come along. We'll just go as far as that fuchsia bush. Come along.' The fuchsia bush was tall. It fell over the fence in a shower. There was a little pit of darkness beneath. "'No, really, I don't want to,' said Beryl. For a moment Harry Kemba didn't answer. Then he came close to her, turned to her, smiled and said quickly, "'Don't be silly. Don't be silly.' His smile was something she'd never seen before. Was he drunk?' That bright, blind, terrifying smile froze her with horror. What was she doing? How had she got here? The stern garden asked her as the gate pushed open, and quick as a cat, Harry Kemba came through and snatched her to him. COLD LITTLE DEVIL COLD LITTLE DEVIL said the hateful voice. But Beryl was strong. She slipped, ducked, wrench free. You are vile, vile, said she. Then why in God's name did you come, stammered Harry Kemba. Nobody answered him. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 A cloud, small, serene, floated across the moon. In that moment of darkness the sea sounded deep, troubled. Then the cloud sailed away, and the sound of the sea was a vague murmur as though it waked out of a dark dream. All was still. End of story